Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Matt, we are so fortunate for our next guest here to help us uh, with context here. Um, one of our all-time favorites as we think about these geopolitical military issues around the world, uh, James Stravitas, uh, Admiral of the United States Navy. He's retired Admiral of the U.S. Navy. He's in the U.S. Navy 37 years, served as the 15th commander in U.S. European Command and NATO's 16th Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us right now. We just heard from President Zelensky's Chief of Staff taking a very, very hard line about how far the people of Ukraine will take this fight to Russia. What is your view of what you're seeing on the ground? Well, first of all, what we are learning is that the center of gravity in this fight is not the Russian army, and it's not really the Ukrainian military arms. The center of gravity is the spirit, the will of these Ukrainians. It's become remarkable, and it's personified by President Zelensky. And I agree with you. I, I cut the tail end of the interview. The chief of staff does a great job channeling his boss, who is marching around the world doing these inspirational speeches at every major parliament and Congress in the world. Um, so there's a great deal to admire on the Ukrainian side of this. In terms of his comments about negotiation, hey, it's Bloomberg, right? We're, we're a business network. We know how you negotiate. And you negotiate um, in two ways. One is you gain as much uh, positive momentum for your side as you possibly can. And number two, you start with a hardline position, recognizing you're going to have to negotiate in from that. And I think both those are true in this case. In terms of the Russian response, Admiral, we've seen um, more and more destructive weapons used. There was a lot of criticism when the hypersonic uh, missiles um, were put into action. But isn't that to be expected as uh, uh, war uh, rages on this long. Of course, they expected to march in and, you know, be greeted much the way Hitler's troops were greeted when they um, completed Anschluss of Austria. That didn't happen, so they're going to use um, bigger force. Indeed, they were expecting bouquets of flowers and bottles of vodka, and what they got were bottles of gasoline with rags stuffed in the top, Molotov cocktails. Um, it has been uh, extraordinary to watch the failure of Russian intelligence and the isolation of Vladimir Putin personally, who clearly had no clue what this was going to look like. And his people uh, failed miserably, at least thus far. So plan A, you're exactly right, was Anschluss. It was sweep across the country, blitzkrieg, a little bit of fighting, find Zelensky, shoot him, and put a puppet government in Kiev. That was plan A. Um, that is over. Plan B, you're also correct, is kind of looking like 15th century siege warfare. Bring all your cannons around the city and just pound it to dirt, terrorize the population. And um, at the end of the day, then you can uh, gain strength for negotiation. That's what Putin's doing on his side of the coin. None of this is unexpected in the way that wars typically unfold. But the I concern has got... 
But Admiral, the concern is that Plan C is biological weapons and possibly tactical nukes. It certainly uh, is a deep concern, and you saw it addressed yesterday by President Biden and the heads of NATO. Um, And so what are we doing about it? We are sending Putin signals that if he crosses that kind of weapon of mass destruction line, there will be serious consequences. What I suspect would happen, that's what would finally lead NATO to put a no-fly zone up. That's very risky, very potential confrontation between nuclear armed powers. But we've got to tell Putin that if he does that, if he uses a tactical nuke, a biologic, a chemical weapon, um, he will face the the full might of the alliance. Um, Boy, I hope we don't go there because it, it is a potential for real miscalculation and a higher level conflict. Admiral, I got to ask about 2034. Not a day goes by in this conflict when I'm not reminded of your novel. And I was telling Paul earlier, I think it, you know, in terms of a fictional entertaining work, it's up there with anything that Jack Carr or, or Lee Childs has ever written. But um, the, the the problem with your book is that it's so realistic and it's ringing true, truer and truer as uh, days go by here. How much of a problem is China and, and what what do you think um, President Xi is is thinking and doing here? Yeah, 2034, a novel of the next world war, of course, is about a potential war between the U.S. and China. And I agree with you. What's happening in front of us ought to act as a real cautionary tale, because if you think this is destructive, the picture a war between U.S. and China, what President Xi is trying to do is kind of keep the ball on the middle of the fairway. He doesn't want to completely align his nation with Russia, partly because he thinks Russia is looking weaker by the minute and it's looking like a a losing bet to do so. On the other hand, he doesn't want to align with the West and fall in completely on these sanctions uh, because he objects to a great deal of how Russia and China, in his view, are treated by the West. So he'll try and play the ball down the middle of the field He will violate, I suspect, some of the sanctions, perhaps about oil and gas. He'll allow Russian banks that come off the SWIFT system to go on his SIPS system, a kind of mini-me version of the SWIFT system. He'll say some generally supportive things. But on the other hand, he's given humanitarian aid to Ukraine. He has spoken against uh, invading other sovereign countries. Um, He is also finally watching Taiwan and thinking, How does this play with my calculus? I think, interestingly, Matt, it makes him less enthusiastic Mm. about an attack on Taiwan because he's watching what happened to Russia not going so well. All right, we're speaking with James Stravitas, Admiral of the United States Navy, and most importantly for this conversation, I think NATO's 16th Supreme Allied Commander in Europe certainly has the, you know, informed opinion. Admiral, if you were advising President Biden right now, today— What would you tell them about what we should do, what NATO should do over the coming days and weeks and maybe months? Uh, First, I'd say it's gone as well as could be expected at this point. Uh, The unity of the NATO alliance has been quite extraordinary. Continue to encourage the Germans to increase their defense spending, which they've done. Uh, Move NATO troops to the borders. The thing I would say to do that we're not doing Uh, I would say, Mr. President, we've got to look again at giving the Ukrainians tactical aircraft, MiG-29s and others. Let's give them the tools to implement a no-fly zone. That's a big advantage for Russia. It's a hole in our strategy. Beyond that single point, 
I think we're doing a reasonably good job. I wonder what you think about um, the Middle East in this scenario. Uh, you know, because this White House has snubbed the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for understandable reasons. Um, his humanitarian record in Yemen is not good, and he allegedly dismembered a journalist. Um, on the other hand, you know, Saudi Arabia is so important strategically for the U.S. as far as I understand it. What, what's your thought? I agree with your assessment. And we, um, if we're going to make up Russian oil and gas in the markets, which we want to do because we don't want to see inflationary pressures jump even more, we have got to get not just the Saudis, but the Gulf states, UAE, Qatar, et cetera. Um, that is where you have more capacity. Um, last thought on the Middle East, by the way, I think the events of this war in Ukraine have elevated the chances of a deal with Iran. And we could go back and forth on whether that's a good deal or a bad deal, but it would certainly also add capacity into the hydrocarbon marketplaces. I think that puts upward pressure on concluding a deal. I would say that is probably in the realm of 70% that deal will occur. Sanctions will come off of Iran, and Iran will rejoin global energy markets. How do you think, Admiral, we judge... How does history judge Angela Merkel and kind of the German appeasement of Putin? Because I remember when the U.S. was over there begging them to put in LNG terminals and they didn't want to hear it because they were so excited about Nord Stream 2. Um, and believe me, I was part of that whole effort as Supreme Allied Commander. <clears throat> I would talk to Chancellor Merkel constantly about not only that, but also defense spending. We got nowhere. Vladimir Putin, in four weeks, has managed to close those arguments, and now Germany has gone to the right place. But Angela Merkel was chancellor for 16 years, elected four times. She has a very strong record overall, but she'll look back. I hope she would look back and say, I made a mistake there. Nord Stream 2 was a mistake. Trusting Russia in any capacity mm -hmm. was a mistake. I think Germany gets that. Yeah, and not raising defense spending. I yeah. remember when Correct. I, I lived over there for years as well. There military was practicing with broomsticks because they didn't have enough rifles. They had one working sub and like, you know, 25 working tanks. Um, it's not going to be an easy, you know, just like getting LNG over there. It's not going to happen overnight or this year, next year, the year after. Building their army back is going to take a decade. I don't think it'll take a decade because there is a reasonable base inside the German military, in my experience, having commanded those troops in combat. But you're absolutely correct that it, it, it does not turn on a dime. So where do I score it? I think it's a three- to five-year project, and they made a good down payment on it by effectively doubling their defense budget. Um, think of it this way. It's kind of like when Carter was defeated and Ronald Reagan came in. It took us three to five years to get the U.S. military back where it needed to be. That's what I think we're going to see in Germany. Admiral, just lastly here, 30 seconds. Do you think President Putin ever resorts to nuclear and or chemical weapons? I think uh, not nuclear. He recognizes the immense downside of that in every dimension. I think it's possible he would attempt something with chemical weapons, try and blame it on the Ukrainians, and further terrorize the population of Ukraine. He is a dark figure, and I would not put it past him. 
Admiral Stravitas, thank you so much for joining us. We've got a couple extra minutes with you, which we really appreciate. We really love getting your perspective here, given your experience uh, in Europe and with our military and NATO. We have a Federal Reserve that's taken a very hawkish pivot, and Citigroup was out this morning with an economics piece talking about multiple 50 basis point rate increases from this Federal Reserve over the next several months, getting even more hawkish. But there's still some people that say, despite all that, the Fed is behind the curve. Is that a thing? Well, joining us right now is Matt Winkler, Editor-in-Chief Emeritus of Bloomberg News, the founder of Bloomberg News. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Studio. He ain't phoning it in from Summit, New Jersey. He is here. Matt, thanks so much for joining us here. Is the Fed still behind their curve? They seem pretty aggressive to me. And, and by the way, we've heard people say this now, Matt, almost every day. It's become, um, it's become rote to say the Fed is behind the curve. Well, that's, that's really the, the point, which is that you have this massive group think uh, with everyone, if you like, led by Larry Summers, uh, probably the most prominent, saying the Fed is behind the curve. And... Uh, there are a handful of people, very smart people, like Brad DeLong, who's an economist at Berkeley, uh, who recently asked the question, somewhat rhetorically, um, okay, if the Fed is behind the curve, then who are, who are the people, who are the authorities who are supposed to be directing us? And the evidence is there is nothing out there other than the bond market, which, in fact, shows that the Fed actually is not behind the curve. The Fed is following, in its data-driven way, what the bond market is telling it. And so to assert that the Fed is you know, behind the curve is to assert that the bond market, which, as you know, is $30 trillion um, and millions of people, is meaningless. And, of course, it isn't meaningless because that's where people have their reputations and everything that they have at stake is on the line. And you're uh, historically a bond man, um, uh, wrote about bonds for the journal before you came and created Bloomberg News. And I, at least I, I, Who once, creates a news business? At least once I've heard you mention Nick from The Great Gatsby. Was he a bond trader as well? Uh, yeah, he was, <laughs> and uh, he, very much so. I was going to ask, so, so what's the data that the bond market provides us with um, to help us decide, you know, uh, how uh, how far behind the curve or or with um, the picture the Fed is, what inflation is expected to be. Like, I guess the break-evens are the best way to look at this. So what the bond market does is it's a huge bazaar, a global bazaar. And in that bazaar, you have every kind of point of view, every kind of uh, activity that's possible. And it's all... Uh, cataloged by price and yield. And the bond market shows you every day going back in time to the present what expectations are. That's why it's so valuable. And what you just referred to is what we call break even. If you want to know what is the expectation of inflation, for example, 30 years out, uh, the bond market can show you that. What is the expectation of inflation 10 years out and five years out? Uh, that is the uh, measure that you referred to called break-even. And the break-even rates show, sure enough, uh, people who are buying and selling securities every day into the future expect inflation to surge uh, robustly over the next two years. But at some point over the next eight years, 
uh, that will change and there will be a precipitous decline in the expectation of inflation. And that's why the bond market is so useful and valuable because the Fed in its activity can use the bond market as a way to keep the economy stable, actually. How reliable are, I mean, I'm looking at the break-evens. I type ILBE on the Bloomberg terminal. I'm looking at the two-year break-even and I see it's almost 5%. I then hear from people like Michael McKee, who covers economics for us, that that's hardly likely considering we're going to be moving off of base effects at that point. So this isn't saying it's going to be 5% two years out, right? So what what is valuable about the bond market is people are literally taking their wherewithal, their assets, and they're making bets about where things are today, where they're going to be five years from now, where they're going to be 30 years from now. And that's all reflected in price and yield. And uh, of course it could change. The point here is that, and it will change, the point here is that the Fed is not behind the curve if what it's doing today is following what the data shows us from the bond market. The Fed is simply doing what's appropriate. And the argument, uh, if you will, against uh, the people who are asserting that the Fed is behind the curve is, okay, well, if it's not the bond market where all this data exists, what is it? And nobody can say what it is. And as Brad DeLong has suggested, what is it? The bond market is a bunch of weirdos now, and the bond (laughs) vigilantes don't count. I mean, no one is asserting that. So uh, you can't have it both ways. Um, this is why the criticism of the Fed seems to be unfounded, because there's no evidence to suggest that there's an alternative for what the Fed is doing. As I mentioned earlier, Matt, City uh, came out with a research report this morning talking about you know multiple 50 basis point rate hikes this year going into next year. It, it, is there a risk that this Fed gets too aggressive and does, in fact, push us into a recession in the interest of trying to cool inflation? Well, there are plenty of people who would suggest that and are suggesting that. Having said that, um, again, if you look at the market right now, what might be surprising to people is why is the stock market seemingly becalmed uh, Mm -hmm. in the face of it? And if you look at something else that is worth paying a lot of uh, attention to, the Bloomberg Financial Conditions uh, Measure Index. FCON Go. Yeah, very valuable tool. If we were suddenly de-anchored and if we had, you know, the Fed had lost its way, you would expect financial markets to be turbulent and you would expect great volatility. But in fact, the Financial Conditions Index shows us we're not too far from the average, the 30-year average, just a little bit below it. Um, And that kind of suggests that um, investors worldwide, even with the invasion of Ukraine and Mr. Putin's war, Uh, against it and the sanctions against him, uh, the market is uh, relatively stable. And equities, the the dumb money, so to speak, have recovered um, with strength. We were down 14% from um, the beginning of the year just a couple weeks ago. Now we're only down 5% as the S&P comes back. Yeah, I mean, look, there's always a problem when you try to impose what happened before now on what is happening today. And what, what people are looking at is this period in the 70s when interest rates went up, you know, 15 percentage points uh, between 1975 and 1981. And, you know, that was just a very different time and place. 
Hey, Matt, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Matt Wingler, Editor-in-Chief Emeritus of Bloomberg News. He did not get the Friday casual memo. He is in a sharp navy blue suit with the bow tie. He and Tom Keene, you can't break them of that habit. Jonathan Webb, CEO and founder of App Harvest. That's a publicly traded company, APPH, uh, building some of the largest greenhouses, combining conventional agricultural techniques with today's technology to grow non-GMO, chemical-free produce. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us here. I would love to get your view here of the supply chain and the challenges that companies across so many industries are dealing with it. How are you seeing it in your business? Yeah, so uh, we're, we're growing fruits and vegetables in a controlled environment uh, year-round with far less land and far less water and uh, using technology. and. And I think the general theme right now is it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great time for us to rethink and reimagine American agriculture uh, and reinvest in farming across the U.S. It's, uh, you, you, we clearly see what's been happening over the last year, two years with COVID, and then now, obviously, you know, the, the very unfortunate events playing out in Ukraine. Uh, but but there's, uh, there's no reason why here in the U.S. we're importing two-thirds of our fruits and vegetables. That's just unacceptable. We're... Uh, you know, one of the largest land-rich, water-rich regions in, in the world, and yet we're importing uh, two-thirds of our fruits and vegetables. And, uh, you know, we can, we can change that dramatically and pretty quickly overnight by using technology and creating uh, new innovative business models to grow here, here at home in the U.S. And I, I have to say I uh, am married to a woman from Spain, uh, from Valencia. So she mm. is constantly unhappy about the produce in this country. Really? Because where she's from, you just walk down the street and pick up tomatoes and oranges off the ground next to your neighbor's field, you know? So, but uh, how local can we make this um, uh, production, Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, hyper-local, very local to, to cities, to, to regions all across the U.S. So we at App Harvest will have about 8 million square feet operating by the end of the year. Uh, we'll be growing strawberries, leafy greens, a variety of tomatoes. Uh, but our focus is bringing that fruit and vegetable production back to the U.S. that's been uh, pushed south of the border. Uh, and yeah, Matt, I mean, many of the European countries, especially the Netherlands, really being kind of the world leader in, in high-tech agriculture, uh, Spain has a pretty good, uh, robust uh, agriculture system that, that's utilizing technology. But, uh, you know, again, reshaping what farming looks like. We, we you know, we, we have the opportunity to grow much more nutritious, higher quality stuff uh, and do that with, with a lot less land and a lot less water. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's bringing technology to farming where you know, the last big technological revolution in American farming is when the when the tractor was introduced. My concern uh, is my, the concern is Jonathan that you as you hold an orange in your hand. Yeah. <laughs> the concern is that you displace American family farmers who I mean frankly have been displaced already but still managed to hang on somehow. How do you yeah, the, how do you work around that? Well, I mean, Matt, they've already we've already lost that. Two thirds of our fruit and vegetables are imported into the U.S. every year. Right. You know, four billion pounds of tomatoes alone are imported. Why are we not growing that in the U.S.? Why are we not getting small farmers technology uh, where you're using LED lights, hydroponic growing, 90 percent less water, 30, 30 plus, uh, getting 30 times yield per acre? Uh, we've we've had a lot of meetings in D.C. over the last few weeks. Uh, food resiliency has become a, a very high focus at the USDA, but on the right side and left side of the aisle, 
And, you know, if, if we in the U.S. want to take this seriously, you know, there needs to be some policy around it. You look at, you know, look at what renewable energy was in the U.S. 15 years ago. It was boutique. It was nascent, non-existent. And now, you know, every state has large portfolios. Look at electric vehicles. You know, you, you've got to put policy in place uh, that incentivizes the private sector to lead. Uh, and and we, we do think that's going to happen with CEA. Controlled environment agriculture is really a third wave of sustainable infrastructure in the U.S. You know, first it was renewables, then it was EVs, you know, and now it's, it's CEA, controlled environment agriculture. Hmm. And, you know, we're pretty hopeful that, uh, you know, we'll see some policy in this new farm bill. We'll, we'll see uh, some policy come out right. of both sides of the aisle in the next year or two to, to really – give technology to farmers and, and let them innovate and, and build a, a more resilient food system here in the U.S. Jonathan, really fascinating stuff. Thanks for coming on and sharing some uh, thoughts there. We'll have you back on to get an update here. Uh, Jonathan Webb, CEO and founder of App Harvest. Boy, we've had, as, as I said, a great uh, slate of guests here today. And we finish off our two hours here with uh, another A-lister, in my opinion, Lizanne Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. You know, Lizanne, I, I kind of grew up in the business with the, the adage, don't fight the Fed. So now I see the Fed, you know, raising rates. City is out with a report this morning talking about multiple 50 basis point rate hikes uh, throughout the year. What do you do in that kind of environment? By the way, I didn't just grow up in that era. I, for thirteen, my first thirteen years, I worked for the late great Marty Zweig. Who ah, very that good. Phrase. Yep. So, um, I, I, you know, lived, ate, and breathed it. At, yes. At <laughs> um, I think when you look at a day like today, where you saw weakness kick in at the point where yield started to pick up, and then you know added to the concern, as you mentioned, the the city report saying we would get a series of. 50 basis points hikes, a lot of adjustments of what the terminal rate is. I think that's a recipe, especially in the aftermath of a pretty sharp rally that may have uh, sent uh, certain technical levels to overbought conditions that might have, you know, kicked in some of the quant-based strategies and and algos, and the the selling starts to uh, to pick back up. So it's not surprising to me at all. One of the I think most valuable things, um, Lizanne, about Schwab is. The, the knowledge you have from your huge investor base. And I don't know how much assets under management you have, but I know it's trillions of dollars. Eight, tr eight trillion, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Eight it's trillion amazing dollars. What, what can you glean then from um, your clients, what they're doing? What, what's their mood right now? Well, because it's such a large client base, it spans the spectrum of, of not just retail investors, but advisors, you know, RAAs that are on our platform, even among the retail investors, everything from short-term day traders to long-term advised investors. And I really think it depends on risk tolerance, time horizon, whether you are just trading on your own, whether you are taking a more disciplined approach, maybe connected to an advisor or consultant. And what we are finding in this more volatile period, with it, which is consistent with other periods of volatility, is that the more disciplined, longer-term investors that have a plan, they've got a strategic asset allocation, they're doing regular rebalancing, they tend to ride through periods like this with a bit more sense of, of calm. It's, it's some of the shorter-term more trading-oriented uh, folks. In some cases, they look at volatility as advantageous from a trading perspective, but that's where you tend to see a little bit more of the uh, extremes of, at times, you know, panic and, and greed. So it really depends on what type of investor you're talking about. 
Hey, Luzanne, um, Matt and I have been noticing that we've been hearing a lot more about recession in the last couple of weeks. Is that something you think is on our horizon? I think anytime you move from extremely loose monetary policy to tighter monetary policy, when you already have slower growth expected, you have to dust off the recession playbook, recession uh, checklist, uh, you know, including the yield curve. Yes, the tens twos is not the end all be all. The tens three month has been considered the more reliable uh, recession indicator. But we've seen this flattening of the yield curve occur slowly down the, the spectrum of maturities. And um, maybe the, the potential inversion of the tens twos doesn't signal a coming inversion in the tens three months. But if the Fed is aggressive, as they're suggesting they might need to be, I think that that's somewhat uh, inevitable. Um, so I, I think I, I, it's premature to make a recession call right now. The labor market is very strong. But uh, should we start to look at what the typical indicators are that start to signal problems? Um, yeah, absolutely. What do you think about alternative assets, Lizanne? I mean, um, I would think of the 60-40 portfolio as uh, pretty standard for uh, a Schwab investor. As you point out, obviously, you have such a huge pool of investors that you run the gamut. But are, are, are more and more people holding um, commodities that previously wouldn't have? Are people getting into digital assets in a way that you see like substantial growth? Yeah, I, I think that there is sort of a broader swath of asset classes that are available to individual investors, even at a relatively low uh, portfolio uh, size. And I think that will continue to be democratized, access to all sorts of alternatives, some of which you mentioned, even in areas eventually like private equity and venture. So I think the individual um, does have an opportunity to take a little bit more of an endowment type approach and not limit themselves to just the typical stocks, bonds, cash. And in this environment where on the, the bond side, you've seen you know the worst start in history, I think there is a focus on where else can I get diversification, especially in a high inflation environment, commodities being um, you know a perfect example of that. Hey, Lizanne, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Always appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective. Liz Ann Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.